All right, we are in Psalm 91. I'm calling this message, In the Habitation of the Most High. It's interesting, the Greeks had a habit of creating gods in their own likeness. Think of you and me, we were made in God's image and likeness, but the Greeks would fashion their own gods, and they had superhuman strength, but typically human passions, human frailties. There was one god, he was half goat, half human. His name was Pan. Pan is the Greek word for all. He was named Pan because allegedly he was, he was adored by all the other gods. In fact, he was the god of the shepherds and fields, the god of the forest. He was known for playing a little set of reed pipes, Pan pipes, the name. Mischievous, they said, always licentious, sometimes affable. But he had this habit when passerbys would come along the forest, he would hide among the shrubbery, among the bushes, and as some unsuspecting traveler would walk by, he would sit there among the vegetation and rustle a bush. Of course, the person hearing that would wonder, what? what's in the woods? So he or she would hasten their steps a little bit. Pan would scamper up ahead, and he'd hide behind some other bush, and again, snap some twigs, make some noise. And now the person's heart rate would begin to increase, and so would their steps. They'd begin to quicken their pace. So Pan would scamper on ahead again, and as they would come around the turn, he'd again jiggle some bushes and sometimes let out a blood-curdling scream, and the person would begin to run in what became known as a panic from the name Pan. That is the origin of the term panic. Interesting, the word pandemic comes from the word pan, not the god pan, but pandemic means all, all-encompassing, affecting potentially everybody. I had never seen such panic as I've seen in the last two years or so in our country, even in our churches. And I've gone to Psalm 91 repeatedly Because I want to remind you that God says he has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Panic doesn't come from God. It comes from the enemy of the soul. It comes from our own flesh. And how should we handle the days in which we live? We we live in turbulent times. Scripture told us in the last days perilous times would come. Perilous is injurious, causing harm, inciting panic even. Those are the days in which we live. But God doesn't want us to despair. So I take you to Psalm 91. Fitting that Randy read the scripture today concerning Christ from Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. His name should be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and peace there shall be no end. Peace on earth, we often hear that sung. You know, that's going to come during the millennial kingdom. Think about this. For all the times of frustrating bad government we've experienced in our lifetime, there will come a day in which this country, this society, in fact, this, this world, will experience 10 straight centuries of perfect government. It's known as the millennium. It's when the Lord will rule and reign on this planet. You know, it'll be done right in Georgia. It'll be done right in the United States. It'll be done right in China and Russia and Israel when the Lord comes to rule and reign. But to that point, he's called the Prince of Peace. Well, what about peace in our time? It's possible. God wants us to have it. I'd like you to stand with me for just a brief reading from Psalm 91. I want to read verses 1 to 7, and I'll read it aloud. I'd like you just to follow along. I'd like you to read it more than just a cursory reading, though. I'd like you to think about what we're reading. I want to cover the, the whole psalm. It's 16 verses, but let me read the first seven here. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. 
I will say of the Lord, He's my refuge and my fortress, my God. In Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with His feathers, and under His wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Thanks. You can be seated. Thanks for standing with me. Often this has been called the the soldier's psalm. It's a psalm of protection. Some have wondered, well, you know, who wrote this psalm? Interesting, the, the title is not, uh, does not tell us an author. Some have surmised, well, it was maybe David because, you know, David hiding in the caves of En Gedi, and they said it sounds a lot like David when he was having to look to God for protection. Others said, no, I, I think it was Moses. And the reason for that, look at the previous psalm, Psalm 90, called A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. Notice the first verse, Lord, that has been our dwelling place in all generations. Dwelling place, habitation. Interesting and very similar to this psalm, he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High. The word secret place is a, is a getaway, like kids building a clubhouse, a tree fort. Or for a married couple, maybe you have your favorite little getaway. No kids, no cell phone, no distractions. That's your little getaway spot. The secret place is synonymous with our habitation. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty, Habitat is where you would be commonly found. Where are you commonly found? Hey, I wonder, is church a common habitation for you? I hope it is. You can't live in church 24-7, but you can walk with God 24-7. I sure hope you do. Some said, well, maybe Moses wrote it. Very interesting. If so, uh, drop on down to Psalm 90, verse 10 there. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. If by reason of strength they be fourscore years Yet is their strength sorrow, uh, labor and sorrow. It's soon cut off, we fly away. My mom used to quote me that forever. I mean, she used to say, well, you know, years, days of our years, three score and 10, 70 years, maybe four score. My mom's, now she's in the sweet spot, right? And I used to tell her, mom, that doesn't mean you have to die at 70 or 80. Remember, the man who wrote that lived till he was 120. Moses, right, okay? But it is interesting Worldwide statistics show life expectancy typically falls between that 70 and 80 decade, that 70 and 80 time spot. That's typical life expectancy among our most advanced societies. Well, did Moses write it or did David write it? The truth is we don't really know who wrote Psalm 91. It's probably good. I believe it's a general psalm of general promise to the people of God. It wasn't just for David. It wasn't just for Moses. It's for us. Well, how are we to understand it? How are we to apply it? I'm going to break it down into three areas. If you like to take notes, I always try to make it easy for people to take notes. We're going to start with a premise established in verses 1 and 2. A premise established. A premise is a truth from which you derive conclusions. It's a foundation upon which you build. So here's the premise. Look at verse 1 again. He that dwelleth, he dwells, he lives, he abides. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Interesting, the word dwell and abide are the same. They're synonyms. It means to move in, to reside there. So for the next couple of days, I'm, I'm staying at the Fairfield Inn over in Locust Grove and staying there tonight again. I was there last night. and So I, I moved in, and last night I set stuff in the closet, and I set up my shaving kit, and I, I kind of do my little nesting thing when I move into a hotel. I mean, it's, it's my place for now. Normally, I live in a fifth-wheel trailer. 
You know, I have a trailer that's 43 feet long with four slide outs and, you know, 400 square feet. That's, that's a big trailer if you're on vacation. It's not a big trailer when you're six foot six and have daughters that are six feet tall and we all live in the 400 square feet all the time. But it's home. When we go back to my home church, we just plug in. That's where we live. We don't own a house. We own, that, that trailer's my spot. That's our abiding place. Well, well, notice for you and me, there's a more important abiding place. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High. The Lord is to be our habitation. Look at verse 2. I'll say of the Lord, he's my refuge. Think about this. If you go to a, a wildlife refuge, sometimes you have a bird refuge, what is, what is something that cannot go on at a refuge? If it's a wildlife refuge, you can't do what there? You couldn't hunt, okay? Animals are protected there. The Lord's my refuge. Notice this. He's my fortress. Fortress, a fortification like ancient castles or the castles you'd find in Europe. He's our fortification. Okay, if he's my refuge and he's my fortress, well, where is God? He's everywhere. So if you're abiding in him, you're safer with God, in the will of God, anywhere in this world, then you'd be at the most secure spot you can think of outside of God's habitation, outside of God's fellowship. Let me break it down. A premise established. We have, first of all here, Personal time with God prioritized. Go back to verse 1 again. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Personal time with God prioritized. As a a kid, I learned the importance of being in God's Word every day. I I speak to teenagers every summer in camps and tell them, listen, I, I wanted to be the kid who, when he got to be an adult, could look back and say, I've never missed a day in my life reading the Bible. I heard somebody say that when I was a 15 year old, I had not had a habit of reading the Bible. And this person in his 50s said, I've never missed a single day reading the Bible. I thought, man, I'd like to be that guy. And I thought, well, I need to start. And I started with five minutes a day, just taking some time every day to spend with God. Well, I'm now 55. And by God's grace, I've never missed a day since I was 15 years old. Now, I don't say that so you think highly of me. Wow, that guy reads the Bible every day. Hey, let me, let me tell you something else I do every day. I brush my teeth every day, every single day. I put on deodorant every day. I shave and shower every day. When we go on a men's camp out, I take my electric razor, I still shave and shower every day. You say, good, you want a button or an award? Just good habits, right? Let me ask you, do your good habits include time spent with God? The other things I mentioned are good for personal hygiene. What about your spiritual hygiene? Ron Hamilton wrote a song I love. It's called My Quiet Place. He said, before I start each day, there is a special place. I love to get alone and seek my Savior's face. I find wisdom in his word to instruct me in his will, and I hear his gentle voice say, my child, be still. My quiet time alone gives me power to obey. My quiet time alone with God each day. I talk to him in prayer. Every day he meets me there, my quiet time alone with God. Ron Hamilton's now battling dementia, but he's had a lifelong habit of spending time with God. What about you? He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Then notice this. There's not only a premise here of personal time with God, but protection from God promised. Look at the latter part of verse 1. He'll abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I'll say of the Lord, he's my refuge, my fortress, my God. In him will I trust. Protection from God is promised. This is really the principle for everything else we're about to read from this psalm. 
And I love this fact that there are four names of God mentioned here. This is one of the reasons it's important when you study. Don't just do a cursory reading, but dig into it. Dive into the text, compare Scripture with Scripture. I, I will tell you this. I, I was with uh, my friend Rusty Smith, pastors down in Macon last week, and I said, you know, funny thing, Rusty, I don't, I don't listen to a lot of preaching. You would think a preacher would listen to a lot of preaching. I've never listened to a lot of preaching. And you think that's so funny. I said, but I don't, I don't like to plagiarize things from other people. And I, I don't know, I just kind of want to get it fresh from God. Now, that's, I'm not discouraging you from listening to preaching. But every day I go to the Word of God, I'm going to tell you something. I go hungry. And when I'm praying for my, my friends, Rusty's my closest friend, and I pray for him every day, among others that I pray for. But I, one of the things I pray for fellow preachers is that they will glean from God. They will have insight into his word. They'll abide in Christ. Well, how do you abide in him? You've got to feed on his word. You've got to drink in his word. You've got to have insights. And one thing I like to do is when I study God's word, I, I don't go to commentaries till later in the process. I'll read it over and over. I'll always study the, the language I'll study the culture. I'll study, you know, Scripture, comparing Scripture. Now, the last thing I'll do is go to commentaries. But, by the way, I'm not opposed to commentaries. Commentators have spent many more hours than most of us ever get a chance to spend in the Word of God. Okay? So I'm not opposed to commentaries, but I usually make it the last thing I do. But I'll tell you, in prepping for this message, I remember I pulled off um, commentary from John Phillips on the book of Psalms, and Phillips pointed out something there are four names of God here used, and I didn't, even, I didn't even register this. And each of these names is significant. Notice in verse 1, he that dwelt in the secret place of the Most High. The term Most High is the Hebrew word Elyon, capital E-L-Y-O-N, Elyon. Elyon means possessor of heaven and earth. Possessor of heaven and earth has to do with possession. You know, uh, Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. When you go to God, you're going to the top of the top. There is no one else to go to above God. Have you ever been in a restaurant and you said, could I speak to the manager, please? Have you ever made a phone call and said, hey, is there a supervisor I could talk to? You know, when you go to God, there is nobody above God. And by the way, there is nobody else you need to go to above God. He owns it all. He's the most high. But not only that, we're told there in verse 1, he's the Almighty. You abide under the shadow of the Almighty. That is the name in Hebrew, Shaddai, capital S-H-A-D, and then D-A-I, Shaddai, S-H-A-D-D-A-I. Shaddai means lavish provider, lavish provider, speaks of provision. Think about when you go to, to God, he promises, my God shall supply all your need according to his what? Riches Where? In glory by Christ Jesus. Oh, man, do I, invest, do I invest in gold and silver? Do I go cryptocurrency, Bitcoin? Oh, man, do I, go, what, do I put stocks in Lowe's, Home Depot, you know, um, big tech? Hey, let, let me just tell you where your investment will never fail. It's in the treasury of the Almighty. And God promises that if you abide in him, He'll take care of your needs if you seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness. All these things, that's food and raiment, all these things shall be added unto you. But what if the American dollar fails? doesn't matter what happens to American currency. God provides according to his riches and glory. The riches and glory will never be affected by what's going on on earth. Remember the Lord told Peter to go pull out a fish and find the tax money in the mouth of the fish to pay his taxes. God can take care of your needs if you seek him and his kingdom first. 
He's our lavish provider. He's Shaddai, the Almighty. But then you see the term Lord. Verse 2, I'll say of the Lord. And you notice something unique about the word Lord. In our King James, the word Lord is all capital letters. You know why that is? That is from the personal name Yahweh or Jehovah. We don't exactly know how they said it because they didn't say that name. Jehovah, you, you typically see it written capital J. E-H-O-V-A-H, Jehovah. We only have the consonants provided. They would would insert the vowels, but when they came to that name, they didn't want to speak God's name in vain, so they would substitute it with a title. The title was Adonai. Adonai means the Lord. That's why in our English Bible, you see the word Lord in all capital letters. And, And who is Jehovah? The name means I am that I am. It's he who is because he is. I remember in talking to somebody one time about evolution, and they said, well, how, do you, how can you believe in God? I mean, who made God? I said, how do you believe evolution? Where do you think everything came from? You have to believe something always existed or someone. It's either in the beginning God or in the beginning gas. In the beginning creator, in the beginning chemical. Something always had to exist. Well, God always existed. He always was. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. That sounds like bad grammar. That is tremendous theology. Before Abraham existed, I always was. He's the I am. This speaks of his promise. In fact, it's God's covenant-keeping name. You and I make promises. We, oh, I promise I'll take you fishing. I promise we'll go on a camping trip. And then the boss comes or the weather interferes and we can't keep our promises. God never made a promise that he cannot keep because God is absolutely in control of everything. He knows everything. He controls everything. He owns everything. He is the Lord. And he's our refuge. Then there's one more term here, and it is the last word, God. Verse 2, he's my God. It's Elohim, capital E-L-O-H-I-M. It's God the creator, God the creator, and that speaks of his power, power. So think of possession, provision, promise, and power. Everything you need, God is. He that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, Hebrews eleven six. So I took a lot of time on those two verses because really that is the premise of the whole psalm. Well, look at verses 3 to 7. I want you to see this then. A picture enhanced. A picture enhanced. Now, you and I know this about the Bible. It's given by inspiration of God. But you know, that doesn't mean mechanical dictation. That doesn't mean that people went into a trance and wrote the word of God, thus saith the Lord. They... If you had seen someone writing scripture, they would not have had their eyes rolled back on their head and their hand moving against their will. God used the personalities of the people. He used the uniqueness of the people. In fact, you know, Paul's writings are different than Peter's. Have you noticed? Peter noticed. Peter even said in one of his epistles, yeah, Paul wrote in his epistles some things hard to be understood. Meaning what? (laughs) That guy's got vocabulary I couldn't even keep up with. Yeah, God used Paul, who was a who was a rabbi trained at the feet of Gamaliel as he used Peter, a fisherman from Galilee. And both men wrote by inspiration of God. He used their unique personalities. He used their unique backgrounds. I'm trying to picture whoever did write the psalm here. We don't know Moses or David or maybe somebody else. They're giving the message from God, but he uses their own creativity as well. And it's like verses 1 and 2 are the premise. Well, now we have a picture. The author of Scripture here, I can imagine thinking, how do I convey this? Let me use some pictures. 
Now, they do something in Hebrew poetry that we would not do in English. In English, we, we do not mix metaphors. You know, you, you would not say, that, that guy was awesome. That speech, man, that guy hit a home run. That, that was just a touchdown, baby. Well, baseball and football, we keep them separate. We don't mix metaphors. In Scripture, there are mixed metaphors all the time. There was no rule like that in, like we follow in English. So we actually have a mixed metaphor here. In fact, I want you to see the two pictures. There is the bird analogy, and then there's the battle analogy. Okay, there's the avian analogy and the army analogy. Avian, things pertaining to birds. Okay, the bird analogy is in verses 3 and 4. So you notice, he says, I will, or surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler. Okay, what does a fowler try to trap? Fowl, yeah, birds. The word snare is a bird trap. He'll deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. If you're a bird, what two things might threaten your existence? Well, human hunters and disease. Interesting. Noisome pestilence here is like the idea of widespread prevailing disease. That sound familiar? He'll deliver thee from the snare of the fowler, from the noisome pestilence. He'll cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. Bird picture reading of a missionary who was in Africa, and this missionary was sent to the, the plains, the grasslands of Africa, people that lived in, in clay huts with thatched roof. One day, a, a fire came through, like we would call a prairie fire out up in Canada or uh, western U.S. Prairie fire came through. It scorched everything, and here this missionary is trying to think of a way to reach these people. They're poverty-stricken, and now Everything they have has been burned up, and, and they're having to start over, and they didn't have much to begin with. So the missionary's bird and his people have all this on their minds, and he's taking a walk one day outside of the village, and he comes upon a spot where there was a, a bird's nest. It had all been burned. And on top of the bird's nest was a hen. Her charred remains were still seated upon the nest. Missionary's walking, and... and Burden for his people, just exasperated. He, he doesn't know why. He just kind of kicked at the bird's nest with his foot. And the, mother's, the mother hen's corpse fell off the nest. Out from underneath scurried three little chicks. They were still alive. And he thought, look at this. One life was given so other lives could be saved. What a picture of the gospel. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. What a picture. He'll cover thee with his feathers and under his wings shalt thou trust. That's the bird analogy. But then we have the battle analogy. Right in the middle of verse 4, he switches pictures. Notice, his truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Now, the word shield there is not like a Captain America shield. This isn't one of those just small oval shields. This is one of those full-length shields like you'd see in depictions of ancient warfare. And it would go from basically from their eye level down to their feet. And if you put them side by side, you could create a literal wall. That's the shield. Buckler here is a shaped shield. It would be like one that would protect you from multiple sides. So as long as you're behind it, you're, you're protected from anything coming from the front. All right, he's your shield and buckler. Notice his truth is your shield and buckler. Verse 5, thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. So what does a person have to fear in battle? Well, obviously arrows, ammunition that, that day was arrows for you and me, bullets flying and IEDs exploding. 
bombs being dropped. But also, interesting, he mentions, thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night. If it's, if it's horrifying to fight in the daytime, imagine a night attack. Now, in our day, we, we have night vision capability. In fact, that was one of the things that separated us from our enemies until we left about a billion plus in Afghanistan so they could have it. But we had the advantage of having night vision capability when many of those we were fighting against didn't have that. But imagine if you can't see at night and you're attacked. Confusion, fear. Look at verse 6. Nor for the pestilence that walk in the darkness. I remember reading McCullough's book, 1776, and he said that when Washington's troops were at Valley Forge, they lost many soldiers over that bleak winter, and there was not an attack by the British. It was from dysentery and disease. Anybody who's studied the art of war will tell you that armies have to worry not only from an, about an attack from the enemy, but from disease within the ranks. Yeah, again, this is widespread disease, kind of like an epidemic or a pandemic. He'll deliver thee, the, the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor the destruction that wasteth at noonday. That is, a, that is a widespread, massive attack. Look at verse 11. A thousand shall fall at thy side, ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Verse 8. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. Okay, the reward of the wicked, you probably know what that is. The reward of the wicked, the wages of sin is what? Death. Only with your eyes you'll behold and see the reward of the wicked. Last summer, I was preaching in Shelby, North Carolina. Actually, last spring, uh, Maranatha Baptist Church. And Larry Brubaker came to the meeting. Larry traveled for years with Dr. Ron Comfort. I, I traveled a summer with Dr. Comfort. That's how I ended up in evangelism. So I've known the Brubakers for years. Brother Larry came to our meetings with his wife, Lavanda. And he said, hey, Rich, did you ever hear Glenn Shunk preach? I said, no, I did not. I said, I know a Brother Shunk, but I, I never heard him. He said, I got a set of CDs I want to give you. It's Glenn Shunk's testimony. You ought to listen to it, Rich. I said, okay, Brother Brew, I will. And I remember listening to it, and it was fascinating. He was drafted during World War II, went in the Army, already a Christian, said, I want to serve the Lord. He would kneel by his bunk to pray. He would read the Bible every day. The others would mock him, call him preacher, deacon, whatever, make a mockery of him. But he said, you know what? I got assigned to a machine gun in a machine gunner nest, and he said, uh, amazing thing, everybody wanted to be in my machine gun nest. And you know why? I never died. He said, I never got shot. In, in engagement after engagement, he said, I'd be there, man in the machine gun, and he said, I had opportunity to talk to guys about the Lord, and they weren't going to leave because we're under fire. I had a captive audience. And he said, engagement after engagement, battle after battle, I was perfectly protected. He said, until finally, toward the end of the war, I took a piece of shrapnel. It wasn't life-threatening, but he said, that was it. I got discharged after that. God had other plans. On to evangelism after that. But he said, you know, I was protected so long as God wanted me there in his place of service. That's why it's often called the soldier's psalm. I look for examples of this, and you can Google them. Now, y'all have figured out not everything you Google is historically accurate. Have you figured that out? So, you know, use your uh, sense of discernment when you do. But I, I Googled the soldier's psalm, and I found out during both World War I and World War II, it was referred to as the soldier's psalm. Let me tell you a fascinating account that came out of World War II. It was the Battle at Dunkirk. The U.S. had not yet entered the war. France and, uh, France and England were fighting Germany, and it was not going well with the French and English. In fact, 
there was a large company of men trapped on the beaches in France, and it looked like they were going to be completely annihilated. In fact, the king at the time, this would be Queen Elizabeth's father, King George VI, called upon people across the British Empire to go to their churches and places of worship and to beg God for a miracle. So from Great Britain to Canada to Australia, in fact, even in the United States, people were going to pray for these troops in their hour of peril. Well, God answered prayer. Four specific miracles occurred at Dunkirk. The first was Hitler ordered his advancing infantry and armored unit to come to a halt. Now, that would prove to be a mistake. It's fascinating. That would again happen at Normandy. Hitler made a number of critical errors. I just finished reading Washington's Crossing and uh, the story of Washington at the Delaware, and amazing how many times you see the hand of providence intervene in American affairs. Read history. It'll give you incredible insight into God's providence. So Hitler ordered his advancing armored unit to a halt. Well, why? Well, there's a second miracle occurred. There was an unprecedented storm over France at that time of year. They didn't typically have heavy rain, but heavy rain had come in. As a result, it grounded the Luftwaffe. The German planes could not fly during that time. So Hitler did not want his armored unit advancing without air support, so he called a halt to the advancing So unusual storm, halted advancing armament. But there was a third miracle that occurred. There was an unprecedented calm that came on the English Channel. Now think, France has got this terrible storm going on, and yet the English Channel, which separates England from France, has a complete calm going on. In fact, this is what Dunkirk became known for, largest naval evacuation. Boats and ships of every kind were sent, naval vessels as well as private vessels, fishing vessels, dinghies, anything that could navigate the water. They were coming in droves to the beaches of Normandy, and soldiers and sailors were being loaded on these vessels and being escorted back to England. Here's the fourth miracle. There was a group of 400 soldiers. They were pinned down there on the beach. In fact, they were being strafed by machine gun fire. All of this 400, all this group, had memorized Psalm 91. They stood and they recited it in unison. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. All this chaos is going on around him. A thousand shall fall at thy side, ten thousand at thy right hand. It shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. Not a single one of those soldiers received a wound. Every one of them was spared. They eventually evacuated from those beaches 338,200 plus, 338,000. It was a miracle. It was. And it was directly connected to Psalm 91. Now that brings us to the last part of this psalm, a promise elaborated. A promise elaborated. Because you might say, well, then, I guess we should all just get that psalm and, you know, uh, get it printed on a medallion, wear the medallion around our neck. In fact, I, I can imagine some with a more contemporary flair thinking, I'm just going to get it tattooed on my bicep, and every time I need, I'll just flex, and there's Psalm 91 on my bicep, and I'll be good, brother. Is this some lucky rabbit's foot? Is this some little fetish that we just, you know, rub the magic psalm, and you'll all be fine? 
Do any of us know soldiers who've died in battle who were Christians? Yes. In fact, I want you to think about this. Some people have the idea, well, is Psalm 91 real or not? I mean, is it just like Russian roulette? Russian roulette, they'll put one live round in a chamber. Well, you could ask Alec Baldwin about this, but one live round in a chamber, the rest of them are not live rounds, and then you squeeze the trigger and just hope it's not the one live bullet. Is this just Russian roulette? You know, maybe some Christians get spared, like Glenn Schunk and others. Well, even Glenn Schunk, he eventually got wounded. You know, let's think contextually, folks. Does this psalm mean that Christians will never die? Okay, think with me. It is appointed unto men once to what? Die. But after this, the judgment. We'll all die one time unless we're here during the rapture. We'll, that'll be the one, most wonderful exemption. But other than the rapture, we'll all die once. Now, there is a second death. That is the death from which the Lord saves us. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. That's Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15. So think context. The psalm obviously does not mean that we'll never die. We're all going to die eventually. So what does it mean? Let me elaborate. Let the psalmist elaborate. Verse 9, notice what he says. Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee. This is very important. The promise is exemption from evil. Exemption from evil. I want you to notice the qualifier here. Because you've made the Lord your refuge, no evil will befall you. This is not a general promise to all humanity. This is a promise to the people of God. Okay, but I'm a Christian. I know other Christians who've died. Yeah, I can, man, I remember some stories. I, I remember the Crown College group that went off a few years back to an ensemble engagement, and the whole van load of the kids died in a fiery crash. Brother Regeer can tell you about the kids from Indianapolis that went up to Camp Kobiak, Camp Joy, and came back and died in a van accident. Yeah, so... Does it mean it or not? Okay, exemption from evil. Let, let's take a look. Let's dive into it here. Because you've made the Lord, verse 9, your refuge, because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the most high, thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. You know the name Corrie Ten Boom? Corrie Ten Boom was from Holland, and she and her family lived during a time when the Nazis had occupied Holland, and they were beginning to exterminate Jews. The Ten Booms were not Jewish. But they were born-again people, and they realized that God says, them that bless thee, I will bless. Him that curseth thee, I will curse. And Mr. Tenboom says, we are going to protect these Jewish people, and we'll trust God to protect us. And they had the home that had in it the hiding place. And for a long time, many months, they hid dozens of Jews in their home. And every day at their own peril, that you can imagine living on pins and needles. Finally, the day came... There was a whistleblower. They were found out. The whole house. They were taken to jail together. In fact, the one day, the last day they were together, they were all standing in the city jail there. And Mr. Tenboom had the family circle around and they recited together this psalm. They had recited it frequently. It was the psalm of confidence that God would protect the family. They were processed. Mr. Tenboom was sent off to a men's facility. 
Corey and her sister Betsy were sent off to a women's facility. The mother had died years before this. Mr. Ten Boom would die within 10 days. Corey and Betsy were first there in Holland. Eventually, they were transferred to Ravensbrück, Ravensbrück, like Auschwitz, a concentration camp. They were forced into being seamstresses there, and they would work their fingers to the bones. They would work hours upon hours, and they were in a barracks that was infested with fleas. In fact, Corey was complaining to her sister one day, Betsy, I, I can't believe that God would let us be here. And then he would let us be in a barracks infested with fleas. And Betsy said, do you not see that the fleas are a blessing? She said, sister, are you deranged? How can fleas be a blessing? She said, think of it, Corey. The guards do not come into our barracks. They don't want to be troubled with the fleas. We have complete freedom in the confines of these walls. They had been able to sh- smuggle in a Bible into their barracks. And they used it to give the gospel, have a Bible study among those who were with them confined. Some of them would be sent to the gas chambers just after hearing the gospel, some of them receiving it just before they died. They talked. Betsy said to Corey, you know, I I believe you will survive this. She said, I believe you'll not only survive, I, I, I can see a day you will have an opportunity to travel around the world and tell our story. She said, Betsy, what about you? She said, I I do not believe, sister, that I shall die, or that I shall shall escape. I I shall die in prison. She said, oh, Betsy, don't talk like a fatalist. She said, Corey, what's the worst thing they can do to me? If they kill me, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And you know, Corey did survive. One year after they were sentenced, through a clerical error, Providence, Corey Ten Boom was released. I'll tell you more of that at the end. But notice there is exemption from evil. But then there's this, angelic attention, verses 11 and 12. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Huh. Angelic attention. Psalm 34, 7 says, The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. How many of you look back in your life and you say, I am pretty sure there's been a time in my life that God protected me that from what it would have been injury or death. Anybody ever have one of those experiences? We, we joke at our family, it would be a bummer of an assignment to be an evangelist assigned to an evangelist family. All the traveling we do, all the different places we stay, there are guardian angels. I'm not talking about the red berets, you know, in New York City either. I'm talking about literal guardian angels. There's angelic attention. But then I want you to notice this. In verse 13, there is protection from predators. Protection from predators. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. David Brainerd was a missionary to the North American Indians, and one day he was in the woods. He knelt among the leaves in the autumn of the year. Didn't know that a a Native American chief was watching him and his braves, They were planning to attack Brainerd. Brainerd was praying for this very tribe of people to come to saving faith. And the chief was about to attack when he noticed a rattlesnake come up behind David Brainerd, and he got into a strike position. He coiled, and the chief told his men, wait. He said, maybe great spirit of the sky will take care of work for us. That snake coiled in a strike position, and then just as inexplicably released its coil and slithered off. And the chief said to his men, Maybe the great spirit of the sky has protected this man. Brainerd made contact with that chief and those men later, not knowing what they had observed. 
They told him, we saw that you were protected. He said, it is my God who has protected me because it's this message that you need. And that entire tribe came to saving faith in Christ because they saw the protection of God on David Brainerd. I want you to see this finally in verses 14 to 16. Deliverance for the devoted. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. Again, notice it's God's people. I'll set him on high because he hath known my name. He shall call upon me. I will answer him. I'll be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. You say, okay, but what about Betsy Ten Boom? One week before Corey was released, one week, Betsy died. Died of sickness there in prison. I'll go back to her word. She said, Corey, what's the worst they can do to me? If I die, to be absent from the body is to be present with my Savior. You know the name Jim Elliott? Jim Elliott served with four other missionaries, Ed McCauley, Pete Fleming, Roger Yadaria, Nate Saint. They went to Ecuador to reach the Aka Indians. That was their intention. Nate Saint would fly his plane in circles. They'd lower a bucket down to offer gifts to these Alcas who were known to be uh, headhunters. They, they, would, they would kill people. The day came, they made contact, it looked like everything was going well, and then you remember the story, all five of them were slaughtered by the Aukas in 1957. Okay, so if you're an eighth saint, what do you think about Psalm 91? Well, wait, after that, Nate's sister Rachel and Jim's wife Elizabeth Elliot went back and they reached that tribe. The Aka tribe came to saving faith in Jesus Christ because, dear friends, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. You see, you and I know the psalm doesn't mean we'll never die, so what does it mean? It means you will not die until it's God's time. If you're walking in fellowship with him, if you know him, are there people who've died out of due season? Oh, yeah. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, there are many sick among you, many sleep. They died. You know why? They took of the table of the Lord unworthily. It wasn't the intended time that God would have had. Why do I bring this to you? What would you think if you had missionaries you supported in other countries and you found out, well, for the last two years, they really haven't gone out and engaged with anybody? Why not? Well, there's really a very strange disease going on among, among the people, and they're rather afraid to get out among the people. And you'd say, well, they're there as missionaries. They should trust God. Okay, and you're here in the United States, and so let me ask you what you've been doing for the last two years. Some have cowered up in absolute panic. Now listen, when you're sick, it's time to stay home. When you're in a place of high risk, it's time to stay home realize we are living in a fanatical country that is now trying to vaccinate children who have a 0.003 fatality rate? We have a country in a panic. You and God decide whether you're going to do the vaccine or what you're going to do as far as treatments or prevention, but I want to tell you something. One thing I know from the great physician, he does not want you to live in fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Well, you, you pay attention to politics. I do, closely. You, you know what happened in Georgia. Yeah, I do. And across the U.S. Do you think God is taken by surprise? 
well, I'll never vote again. My vote doesn't do any good. No, 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 no. Don't, don't play into the hand of giving away your civil liberties. But let me tell you something. Put your focus on the Lord. He is our habitation.